0: Chapter Fifteen Part One of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gavin Smith. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Fifteen Part One Passage of the Cordillera. Valparaiso, Portillo Pass. Sagacity of mules, mountain torrents, mines, how discovered, proofs of the gradual elevation of the Cordillera, effect of snow on rocks, geological structure of the two main ranges, their distinct origin and upheaval, great subsidence, red snow, winds, pinnacles of snow, dry and clear atmosphere, electricity. Pampas, Zoology of the Opposite Side of the Andes, Locusts, Great Bugs, Mendoza, Uspelata Pass, silicified Trees Buried as They Grew, Incas Bridge, Badness of the Passes Exaggerated, Cumbre, Casuches, Valparaíso. March 7th, 1835. We stayed three days at Conception, and then sailed for Valparaiso. The wind being northerly, we only reached the mouth of the harbour of Conception before it was dark. Being very near land, and a fog coming on, the anchor was dropped. Presently, a large American whaler appeared alongside of us, and we heard the Yankee swearing at his men to keep quiet while he listened for the breakers. Captain Fitzroy hailed him in a loud clear voice to anchor where he then was. The poor man must have thought the voice came from the shore. Such a babel of cries issued at once from the ship, every one hallooing out, "Let go the anchor! veer cable! shorten sail!" It was the most laughable thing I ever heard. If the ship's crew had been all captains and no men, there could not have been a greater uproar of orders. We afterwards found that the mate stuttered; I suppose all hands were assisting him in giving his orders. On the eleventh we anchored at Valparaiso, and two days afterwards I set out to cross the Cordillera. I proceeded to Santiago, where Mr. Calclew most kindly assisted me, in every possible way, in making the little preparations which were necessary. In this part of Chile there are two passes across the Andes to Mendoza. The one most commonly used, namely that of Aconcagua or Ruzpilata, is situated some way to the north. The other, called the Portillo, is to the south, and nearer, but more lofty and dangerous. March 18th. We set out for the Portillo Pass. Leaving Santiago, we crossed the wide, burnt-up plain on which that city stands, and in the afternoon arrived at the Mapu, one of the principal rivers in Chile. The valley, at the point where it enters the first cordillera, is bounded on each side by lofty, barren mountains, and, although not broad, it is very fertile. Numerous cottages were surrounded by vines, and by orchards of apple, nectarine, and peach trees, their boughs breaking with the weight of the beautiful, ripe fruit. In the evening we passed the Customs' House, where our luggage was examined. The frontier of Chile is better guarded by the Cordillera than by the waters of the sea. There are very few valleys which lead to the central ranges, and the mountains are quite impassable in other parts by beasts of burden. The Customs' House officers were very civil, which was perhaps partly owing to the passport which the President of the Republic had given me, but I must express my admiration at the natural politeness of almost every Chileano. In this instance, the contrast with the same class of men in most other countries was strongly marked. I may mention an anecdote which I was at the time much pleased. We met near Mendoza a little and very fat negress riding astride on a mule. She had a goitre so enormous that it was scarcely possible to avoid gazing at her for a moment. But my two companions almost instantly, by way of apology, made the common salute of the country by taking off their hats. Where would one of the lower or higher classes in Europe have shown such feeling politeness to a poor and miserable object of a degraded race? At night we slept at a cottage. Our manner of travelling was delightfully independent. In the inhabited parts we bought a little firewood, hired pasture for the animals, and bivouacked in the corner of the same field with them. Carrying an iron pot, we cooked and ate our supper under a cloudless sky, and knew no trouble. My companions were Mariano Gonzales who had formerly accompanied me in Chile, and an Ariro with his ten mules, and a madrina. The madrina, or godmother, is the most important personage. She is an old, steady mare, with a little bell round her neck, and, wherever she goes, the mules, like good children, follow her. The affection of these animals for their madrinas saves infinite trouble. If several large troops are turned into one field to graze, In the morning the muleteers have only to lead the madrinas a little apart, and tinkle their bells. Although there may be two or three hundred together, each mule immediately knows the bell of its own madrina, and comes to her. It is nearly impossible to lose an old mule, for if detained for several hours by force, she will, by the power of smell, like a dog, track out her companions, or rather the madrina, for, according to the muleteer, she is the chief object of affection. The feeling, however, is not of an individual nature, For I believe I am right in saying that any animal with a bell will serve as a madrina. In a troop, each animal carries on a level road a cargo weighing 416 pounds, more than twenty-nine stone, but in a mountainous country one hundred pounds less. Yet with what delicate slim limbs, without any proportional bulk of muscle, these animals support so great a burden? The mule always appears to me a most surprising animal. That a hybrid should possess more reason, memory, obstinacy, social affection, powers of muscular endurance, and length of life, than either of its parents, seems to indicate that art has here outdone nature. Of our ten animals, six were intended for riding, and four for carrying cargoes, each taking turn about. We carried a good deal of food in case we should be snowed up, as the season was rather late for passing the portillo. March 19th. We rode, during this day, to the last, and therefore most elevated, house in the valley. The number of inhabitants became scanty, but wherever water could be brought on the land, it was very fertile. All the main valleys in the Cordillera are characterized by having, on both sides, a fringe or terrace of shingle and sand, rudely stratified, and generally of considerable thickness. These fringes evidently once extended across the valleys and were united, and the bottoms of the valleys, in northern Chile, where there are no streams, are thus smoothly filled up. On these fringes the roads are generally carried, for their surfaces are even, and they rise, with a very gentle slope up the valleys. Hence, also, they are easily cultivated by irrigation. They may be traced up to a height of between seven thousand and nine thousand feet, where they become hidden by the irregular piles of debris. At the lower end, or mouths of the valleys, they are continuously united to those land-locked plains, also formed of shingle, at the foot of the main cordillera, which I have described in a former chapter as characteristic of the scenery of Chile, and which were undoubtedly deposited when the sea penetrated chile, as it now does the more southern coasts. No one fact in the geology of South America interested me more than these terraces of rudely stratified shingle. They precisely resemble in composition the matter which the torrents in each valley would deposit, if they were checked in their course by any cause, such as entering a lake or arm of the sea. But the torrents, instead of depositing matter, are now steadily at work wearing away both the solid rock and these alluvial deposits, along the whole line of every main valley and side valley. It is impossible here to give the reasons, but I am convinced that the shingle terraces were accumulated during the gradual elevation of the Cordillera, by the torrents delivering, at successive levels, their detritus on the beachheads of long, narrow arms of the sea, first high up the valleys, then lower and lower down as the land slowly rose. If this be so, and I cannot doubt it, the grand and broken chain of the Cordillera, instead of having been suddenly thrown up, as was till lately the universal, and is still the common opinion of geologists, has been slowly upheaved in mass, in the same gradual manner as the coasts of the Atlantic and Pacific have risen within the recent period, a multitude of facts in the structure of the Cordillera on this view receive a simple explanation. The rivers which flow in these valleys ought rather to be called mountain torrents. Their inclination is very great, and their water the colour of mud. The roar which the Maypu made, As it rushed over the great rounded fragments, was like that of the sea. Amidst the din of rushing waters, the noise from the stones, as they rattled over one another, was most distinctly audible even from a distance. This rattling noise, night and day, may be heard along the whole course of the torrent. The sound spoke eloquently to the geologist, the thousands and thousands of stones, which, striking against each other, made that one dull uniform sound, were all hurrying in one direction, It was like thinking on time, where the minute that now glides past is irrevocable. So it was with these stones. The ocean is their eternity, and each note of that wild music told of one more step towards their destiny. It is not possible for the mind to comprehend, except by a slow process, any effect which is produced by a cause repeated so often that the multiplier itself conveys an idea, not more definite than the savage implies when he points to the hairs of his head as often as i have seen beds of mud sand and shingle accumulated to the thickness of many thousand feet i have felt inclined to exclaim that causes such as the present rivers and present beaches could never have ground down and produced such masses but on the other hand when listening to the rattling noise of these torrents and calling to mind that whole races of animals have passed away from the face of the earth and that during this whole period night and day these stones have gone rattling onwards in their course i have thought to myself Can any mountains, any continent, withstand such waste? In this part of the valley, the mountains on each side were from 3,000 to 6,000 or 8,000 feet high, with rounded outlines and steep, bare flanks. The general colour of the rock was dullish-purple, and the stratification very distinct. If the scenery was not beautiful, it was remarkable and grand. We met, during the day, several herds of cattle, which men were driving down from the higher valleys in the Cordillera this sign of the approaching winter hurried our steps more than was convenient for geologizing the house where we slept was situated at the foot of a mountain on the summit of which are the mines of st pedro de nolasco sir f head marvels how mines have been discovered in such extraordinary situations as the bleak summit of the mountain of st pedro de nolasco in the first place the metallic veins in this country are generally harder than the surrounding strata hence during the gradual wear of the hills they project above the surface of the ground. Secondly, almost every labourer, especially in the northern parts of Chile, understands something about the appearance of ores. In the great mining provinces of Coquimbo and Copiapo, firewood is very scarce, and men search for it over every hill and dale, and by this means nearly all the richest mines have there been discovered. Charoncillo, from which silver to the value of many hundred thousand pounds has been raised in the course of a few years, was discovered by a man who threw a stone at his loaded donkey, and, thinking that it was very heavy, he picked it up and found it full of pure silver. The vein occurred at no great distance, standing up like a wedge of metal. The miners, also, taking a crowbar with them, often wander on Sundays over the mountains. In this south part of Chile, the men who drive cattle into the Cordillera, and who frequent every ravine where there is a little pasture, are the usual discoverers. 20th As we ascended the valley, the vegetation, with the exception of a few pretty alpine flowers, became exceedingly scanty, and of quadrupeds, birds, or insects, scarcely one could be seen. The lofty mountains, their summits marked with a few patches of snow, stood well separated from each other, the valleys being filled up with an immense thickness of stratified alluvium. The features in the scenery of the Andes which struck me most, as contrasted with the other mountain chains with which I am acquainted, were the flat fringes sometimes expanding into narrow plains on each side of the valleys, the bright colours, chiefly red and purple, of the utterly bare and precipitous hills of porphyry, the grand and continuous wall-like dykes, the plainly divided strata, which, where nearly vertical, formed the picturesque and wild central pinnacles, but where less inclined, composed the great massive mountains on the outskirts of the range, and, lastly, the smooth conical piles of fine and brightly coloured detritus, which sloped up at a high angle from the base of the mountains, sometimes to a height of more than 2,000 feet. I frequently observed, both in Tierra del Fuego and within the Andes, that where the rock was covered during the greater part of the year with snow, it was shivered in a very extraordinary manner into small, angular fragments. Scoresby has observed the same fact in Spitzbergen. Footnote. SCORESBY'S ARCTIC REGIONS, VOLUME 1, PAGE 122. END FOOTNOTE. The case appears to me rather obscure, for that part of the mountain which is protected by a mantle of snow must be less subject to repeated and great changes of temperature than any other part. I have sometimes thought that the earth and fragments of stone on the surface were perhaps less effectually removed by slowly percolating snow water than by rain, and therefore that the appearance of a quicker disintegration of the solid rock under the snow was deceptive. Footnote. I have heard it remarked in Shropshire that the water, when the Severn is flooded from long-continued rain, is much more turbid than when it proceeds from the snow melting in the Welsh mountains. Diorberny, Tom 1, page 184, in explaining the cause of the various colours of the rivers in South America, remarks that those with blue or clear water have their source in the Cordillera, where the snow melts. End footnote. Whatever the cause may be, The quantity of crumbling stone on the cordillera is very great. Occasionally, in the spring, great masses of this detritus slide down the mountain and cover the snowdrifts in the valleys, thus forming natural ice-houses. We rode over one, the height of which was far below the limit of perpetual snow. As the evening drew to a close, we reached a singular, basin-like plain, called the Valle de Yeso. It was covered by a little dry pasture, We had the pleasant sight of a herd of cattle amidst the surrounding rocky deserts the valley takes its name of yeso from a great bed i should think at least two thousand feet thick of white and in some parts pipe pure gypsum we slept with a party of men who were employed in loading mules with this substance which is used in the manufacture of wine we set out early in the morning twenty first and continued to follow the course of the river which had become very small till we arrived at the foot of the ridge that separates the waters flowing into the pacific and atlantic oceans the road which as yet has been good with a steady but very gradual ascent now changed into a steep zigzag track up the great range dividing the republics of chile and mendoza i will here give a very brief sketch of the geology of the several parallel lines forming the cordillera of these lines there are two considerably higher than the others namely on the chilean side the Puchanese ridge, which, where the road crosses it, is 13,210 feet above the sea, and the Portillo ridge, on the Mendoza side, which is 14,305 feet. The lower beds of the Puchanese ridge, and of the several great lines to the westward of it, are composed of a vast pile, many thousand feet in thickness, of porphyries which have flowed as submarine lavas, alternating with angular and rounded fragments of the same rocks, thrown out of the submarine craters. These alternating masses are covered in the central parts by a great thickness of red sandstone, conglomerate, and calcareous clay-slate, associated with, and passing into, prodigious beds of gypsum. In these upper beds shells are tolerably frequent, and they belong to about the period of the lower chalk of Europe. It is an old story, but not the less wonderful, to hear of shells which were once crawling on the bottom of the sea, now standing nearly fourteen thousand feet above its level. The lower beds in this great pile of strata have been dislocated, baked, crystallized, and almost blended together through the agency of mountain masses of a peculiar white, soda granitic rock. The other main line, namely that of the Portillo, is of a totally different formation. It consists chiefly of grand, bare pinnacles of a red potash granite, which, low down on the western flank, are covered by a sandstone, converted by the former heat into a quartz rock. On the quartz there rest beds of a conglomerate several thousand feet in thickness, which had been upheaved by the red granite, and dip at an angle of forty-five degrees towards the Pecuny's line. I was astonished to find that this conglomerate was partly composed of pebbles derived from the rocks, with their fossil shells of the Pecuny's range, and partly of red potash granite, like that of the Portillo. Hence, we must conclude that both the Pucunis and Portillo ranges were partially upheaved and exposed to wear and tear when the conglomerate was forming, but, as the beds of conglomerate have been thrown off at an angle of 45 degrees, by the red Portillo granite, with the underlying sandstone baked by it, we may feel sure that the greater part of the injection and upheaval of the already partially formed Portillo line took place after the accumulation of the conglomerate, and long after the elevation of the Pucunis ridge, so that the Portillo, The loftiest line in this part of the Cordillera is not so old as the less lofty line of the Pucunis. Evidence derived from an inclined stream of lava at the eastern base of the Portillo might be adduced to show that it owes part of its great height to elevation at a still later date. Looking to its earliest origin, the red granite seems to have been injected on an ancient, pre-existing line of white granite and mica-slate. In most parts, perhaps in all parts, of the Cordillera, it may be concluded that each line has been formed by repeated upheavals and injections, and that several parallel lines are of different ages. Only thus can we gain time at all sufficient to explain the truly astonishing amount of denudation which these great, though comparatively with most other ranges recent, mountains have suffered. Finally, the shells in the Pucranes or oldest reach, prove, as before remarked, that it has been upraised 14,000 feet since the secondary period, which in Europe we are accustomed to consider as far from ancient. But since these shells lived in a moderately deep sea, it can be shown that the area now occupied by the Cordillera must have subsided several thousand feet, in northern Chile as much as 6,000 feet, so as to have allowed that amount of submarine strata to have been heaped on the bed on which the shells lived. The proof is the same with that by which it was shown, that at a much later period, since the tertiary shell of Patagonia lived, there must have been a subsidence of several hundred feet, as well as an ensuring elevation. Daily it is forced home on the mind of the geologist that nothing, not even the wind that blows, is so unstable as the level of the crust of this earth. I will make only one other geological remark. Although the Portillo chain is here higher than the Pucanes, the waters draining the intermediate valleys have burst through it, The same fact, on a grander scale, has been remarked in the eastern and loftiest line of the Bolivian Cordillera, through which the rivers pass. Analogous facts have also been observed in other quarters of the world. On the supposition of the subsequent and gradual elevation of the Portillo line this can be understood. For a chain of islets would at first appear, and, as these were lifted up, the tides would be always wearing deeper and broader channels between them. At the present day. Even in the most retired sounds on the coast of Tierra del Fuego, the currents in the transverse breaks which connect the longitudinal channels are very strong, so that in one transverse channel even a small vessel under sail was whirled round and round. About noon we began the tedious ascent of the Pucanese ridge, and then for the first time experienced some little difficulty in our respiration. The mules would halt every 50 yards, and, after resting for a few seconds, the poor willing animals started of their own accord again. The short breathing from the rarefied atmosphere is called by the Chileños Puna, and they have the most ridiculous notions concerning its origin. Some say, all the waters here have Puna. Others that, where there is snow, there is Puna. And this, no doubt, is true. The only sensation I experienced was a slight tightness across the head and chest, like that felt on leaving a warm room and running quickly in frosty weather. There was some imagination even in this, for upon finding fossil shells on the highest ridge I entirely forgot the puna in my delight. Certainly the exertion of walking was extremely great, and the respiration became deep and laborious. I am told that in Potosi, about 13,000 feet above the sea, strangers do not become thoroughly accustomed to the atmosphere for an entire year. The inhabitants all recommend onions for the puna, as this vegetable has sometimes been given in Europe for pectoral complaints. It may possibly be of real service. For my part, I found nothing so good as the fossil shells. When about halfway up, we met a large party with seventy loaded mules. It was interesting to hear the wild cries of the muleteers, and to watch the long descending string of the animals. They appeared so diminutive, there being nothing but the Black Mountain with which they could be compared. When near the summit, the wind, as generally happened, was impetus and extremely cold. On each side of the ridge, we had to pass over broad bands of perpetual snow, which were now soon to be covered by a fresh layer. When we reached the crest and looked backwards, a glorious view was presented. The atmosphere was splendidly clear, the sky an intense blue, the profound valleys, the wild, broken forms, the heaps of ruins piled up during the lapse of ages, the bright-coloured rocks contrasted with the quiet mountains of snow. All these together produced a scene no one could have imagined. Neither plant nor bird, excepting a few condors wheeling around the higher pinnacles, distracted my attention from the inanimate mass. I felt glad that I was alone. It was like watching a thunderstorm, or hearing in full orchestra a chorus of the Messiah. On several patches of the snow, I found the Protococcus nivalis, or red snow, so well known from the accounts of Arctic navigators. My attention was called to it by observing the footsteps of the mules stained a pale red, as if their hoofs had been slightly bloody. I at first thought that it was owing to dust blown from the surrounding mountains of red porphyry. For, from the magnifying power of the crystals of snow, the groups of these microscopical plants appeared like coarse particles. The snow was coloured only where it had thawed very rapidly, or had been accidentally crushed. A little rubbed on paper gave it a faint rose tinge mingled with a little brick red. I afterwards scraped some off the paper, and found that it consisted of groups of little spheres in colourless cases, each of the thousandth part of an inch in diameter. The wind on the crest of the Puchanes, as just remarked, is generally impetus and very cold. It is said to blow steadily from the westward or Pacific side. Footnote. Dr. Gillies, in Journal of Natural and Geographical Science. August 1830. This author gives the heights of the passes. End footnote. As the observations have been chiefly made in summer, this wind must be an upper and return current. The peak of Tenerife, with less elevation and situated in latitude 28 degrees, in like manner falls within an upper return stream. At first it appears rather surprising that the trade wind along the northern parts of Chile and on the coast of Peru should blow in so very subtly a direction as it does, but when we reflect that the cordillera, running in a north and south line, intercepts, like a great wall, the entire depth of the lower atmospheric current, we can easily see that the trade wind must be drawn northward, following the line of the mountains, towards the equatorial regions, and thus lose part of that easterly movement which it otherwise would have gained from the earth's rotation. At Mendoza, on the eastern foot of the Andes, the climate is said to be subject to long calms and to frequent though false appearances of gathering rainstorms. We may imagine that the wind, which coming from the eastward is thus banked up by the line of mountains, would become stagnant and irregular in its movements. Having crossed the Pukanes, we descended into a mountainous country intermediate between the two main ranges, and then took up our quarters for the night. We were now in the Republic of Mendoza. The elevation was probably not under 11,000 feet, and the vegetation in consequence exceedingly scanty. The root of a small scrubby plant served as fuel, but it made a miserable fire, and the wind was piercingly cold. Being quite tired with my day's work, I made up my bed as quickly as I could and went to sleep. About midnight, I observed the sky became suddenly clouded. I awakened the arriero to know if there was any danger of bad weather, but he said that without thunder and lightning, there was no risk of a heavy snowstorm. The peril is imminent, and the difficulty of subsequent escape great to any one overtaken by bad weather between the two ranges. A certain cave offers the only place of refuge. Mr. Calclew, who crossed on this same day of the month, was detained there for some time by a heavy fall of snow. Casuchas, or houses of refuge, have not been built in this pass as in that of Uspallata, and, therefore, during the autumn, the portillo is little frequented. I may here remark that within the main cordillera rain never falls, for during the summer the sky is cloudless, and in winter snowstorms alone occur. At the place where we slept, water necessarily boiled, from the diminished pressure of the atmosphere, at a lower temperature than it does in a less lofty country, the case being the converse of that of a papin's digester. Hence the potatoes, after remaining for some hours in the boiling water, were nearly as hard as ever. The pot was left on the fire all night, and next morning it was boiled again, but yet the potatoes were not cooked. I found out this by overhearing my two companions discussing the cause. They had come to the simple conclusion That the cursed pot, which was a new one, did not choose to boil potatoes. End of chapter fifteen. Recording by Gavin Smith.